Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I was joined by Dr. Richard Hill, Professor Emeritus at Michigan State University. He was here to discuss his recently published bioscience article, Living Naked in the Cold, New Insights into Metabolic Feasibility in Primeval Cultures, which uses a number of fascinating techniques to describe three cultures who did just that. Uh, that is, they live with minimal clothing in areas where the climate was often quite chilly. I'll let him explain the details though. So let's go straight to the interview. Dr. Hill, thank you very much for joining me today. I was hoping to get us started. You could just give us a little bit of an introduction to the paper itself. You know, what are we talking about with these three cultures? Thanks, James. Right. Well, the paper that we'll be talking about this morning is one that I've written on three people who, uh, when Europeans spread around the world and first explored the world, three peoples that the Europeans found living naked or relatively naked in quite cold places. And I guess an early question would be, you know, how cold are we actually talking about here? Um, you know, I, I think of myself clothed, wearing a, a light jacket when it's 10 Celsius, 50 Fahrenheit, and, you know, being a little bit chilly. I wouldn't want to be like that year round or for months on end. Uh, how cold were the places that we're actually discussing? Right. Well, one of the things that I did was to uh, gather data systematically on that I mean, the problem is that all of these people are, are have been decimated or in some cases driven to extinction long ago. And so we can't just go see them naked now living in the cold. We have to reconstruct this in the past. And, and of course, the further you go back in the past, the fewer the records of temperature and other weather variables are. So I did that, and I, came, I, I looked at what was available, and, and a lot of that's quite opportunistic and scattered types of ins information. But I came up with th that these three cultures pretty much lived under similar conditions in the wintertime, and those were between roughly minus 5 and plus 5 degrees Celsius. Okay, so that's pretty chilly, you know, right around the freezing mark for water. Um, I'm wondering now where and when these cultures were first encountered by Europeans. Um, this was obviously not a recent occurrence. Well, uh, the I think the first to be discovered and recorded probably, actually, I think Drake observed ones at the tip of South America, but I think all that happened was that he saw them from ships. So he established there were people around at the tip of South Terra del Fuego, the tip of South America. Uh, certainly, there were there were thorough descriptions by uh, Captain Cook, um, who visited, for example, the east coast of Australia in um, 1720, if I remember, no, 17, sometime in the 1700s, and got all. They they had to come in and do some ship repairs, so they were on land for a while and wandered around and saw the people repeatedly, either through binoculars or in some cases standing right next to them in um, Australia, and including Tasmania. Uh, so anyway, the places the three people exist are Australia, including Tasmania, the tip of South America, Tierra del Fuego, and the third group is the Bushmen of Southern Africa, who there you might not think it would be that cold, but the, the dominant place that the Bushmen lived was on the plateau that's now Botswana. And because it's between, I think, four and 8,000 feet, it's chilly there, too, in the wintertime. 
That's interesting. So you've got these, you know, uh, three distinct cultures spread all around the world, um, and you have a habit of not wearing clothing in areas where it gets rather, or in my opinion, quite cold. Yes, exactly. And, and uh, a fellow named uh, James Gilligan, who is an Australian, a modern-day Australian, uh, he's written a book, and others have as well, to, to say that potentially um, people all around, if you go back thousands of years, maybe everybody was naked. Uh, and, and these then, in that sense, might have been three... Um, in a certain sense, holdouts, cultures that stayed naked, uh, even as much of the world clothed itself. And one of the things that Gilligan goes to great efforts to um, to convince us of in his writing is that the people didn't think of themselves as naked. They had no conception of being naked or clothed. <laughs> And and so it, it's very hard to imagine that perhaps for us. But and he has, for example, a uh, a drawing that was done maybe two hundred years ago in Australia when the 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 visitors, the Europeans, were trying to convince the uh, na native peoples to wear clothes, and they had some quite formal looking clothes, you know, British jackets and so forth that they were, had persuaded the people occasionally to wear. And, and then this drawing is of two men standing there in these d dignified English clothes, utterly naked below the waist. <laughs> so it conveys, you know, a picture says a thousand words sometimes. And it, it, the, the message it seems to convey is that they really had no notion that they were what we call naked. No, you wouldn't. I mean, you, you're you're familiar with you know the the cultural mores of of you know your own culture, and there there would be no way to know that. Right. Yeah. Now, so I'm wondering, you know, how do we know you know the things that we do know about these groups of people? You know, you mentioned that they had been uh, had their populations decimated or they had been driven to extinction by um, you know European settlers. Uh, what kinds of records do we have? Probably, truly, most of the records were for people for Europe for, or were recorded by Europeans, people of European descent, who were living in these parts of the world for economic reasons. They weren't trained uh, anthropologists or biologists or anything. They were there hunting seals, hunting whales, farming sheep, um, mining gold and diamonds, on and on and on. And so, you know, and, and some of these individuals with no particular training for making anthropological observations, uh, but they became deeply interested in the local people. And, and many of them were extremely sympathetic towards the local people. And they recorded what they what they saw. So those would be the earliest records. And then of course you have the ships like Captain Cook and and, and one of the earliest um, scientific records was by none other than Charles Darwin. You know, if one starts off wondering, well, could this really be true or is this all just made up? Well, actually, we have uh, Darwin's voice on this because when he was in Tierra del Fuego in 1832 on the second Beagle voyage, uh, he observed these people. He made a, a famous 
state or recorded. It's now in the Origin of Species. It was titled differently at the time, but he made this famous observation that he saw a woman with a relatively newborn baby in a canoe, uh, both of them stark naked, with sleet pouring down on them from the sky. And uh, this apparently was quite a common thing, is to see these people out in the sleet, na sleet naked. But here was this woman and her infant uh, with the sleet pouring down and melting. This is Darwin again, his words, melting on them. So we we know in these senses that, that um, uh, the, the people really were naked. Only later did, did people with any sort of uh, anthropological or uh, scientific training show up and and the, they basically the culture was disappearing as the people that could have done more scientific and thorough or objective records were showing up all around in all three locales okay and that sleet example in particular catches my ear and raises a question for me that you know may not be answerable but it's how did they survive how was it possible that they didn't get hypothermic and you know perish i'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who enjoys backpacking and hiking and you know when i go out and there's sleet or anything approaching sleet uh i've got on some you know pretty nice technical gear and i'm staying warm and insulated and even then i'm still a little cold i'm wondering you know how did people manage to survive in these circumstances i wish i could tell you um you know it's part of the, my interest in this is a lifelong interest um very little see i'm a physiologist by training and very little physiological investigation was done on these people uh and what we have is very limited really even though the people gathering the data when they finally did get there to do data gathering which was in the 1950s that's when a genuine physiologist showed up and started doing measurements um but anyway, um, all, this early physiological research, despite its limitations, was being done while I was an undergraduate. And I was reading some of the papers as they were published by the time they were getting towards the end. This is now the 1960s of the effort to get data. I was um, in graduate school. And then I think virtually nothing has been done on them physiologically since the mid 60s 1960s so but anyway i always felt that it was really important to record this that this that these people existed that this data such as it is it's not very thorough that this data exists that was the that was why i find myself at this point in my life writing this paper and then what made it an opportune time is that over the past several decades, we've been getting a lot more information on human metabolism and metabolic endurance, especially, which we knew very little about even 15 years ago compared to now. And that all bears on, on our interpretation of, of the, the naked people. Does that sort of answer? No, it does. And I'd, I'd love to talk more about um, metabolism in particular. How do we know how many calories, uh, you know, these folks were burning in comparison to, you know, what someone would say burn at rest? Well, um, I think there's a two-part answer. One is that there are some studies, again, it, it always surprises me how few studies, 
But there are studies done in the modern era. So this would date from, let's say, 1940 forward of naked modern people. And these all started, and most of the data available are for Europeans. So, for example, um, people were studying naked Norwegians and naked um, Finn people, including some of this um, herders, the local herders, herders have more of a traditional background. So we have that kind of information, and uh, we do have data on modern people of their metabolic rates naked at a wide range of temperatures. And then during the period in the 1950s, 1960s, when physiologists went to the three, the places that the three naked peoples live and gathered direct data on them, they gathered enough information, I feel, that we can be pretty confident that the metabolic intensities of those people naked were very similar to the metabolic intensities of modern people naked. In other words, there, there hasn't been an evolution towards some kind of fundamentally different metabolic functioning or meta, uh, level of metabolism. Um, there wasn't that kind of an evolution of something special in that way in the three cultures. So then as we've got, gathered more data on modern people and, and particularly data on metabolic endurance, we seem justified in assuming that what we're learning now about human physiology from studying modern people applied also to these uh, three cultures. I think that's that's where we end up now. And I'm wondering whether we're talking about you know these primeval cultures or we're talking about modern humans. What are those metabolic rates like? You know, how many extra calories are being burned? As best we can estimate, and I've estimated this in two different ways. They're 24 hours. So when I speak of daily, I'm referring to 24 hour average metabolic rates were around two and a half times when they were living naked in the cold. Their, their daily metabolic rates were average 24 hour metabolic rates were about two and a half times basal. And that would include the overnight resting period when probably these uh, people living in the cold, living in the cold, the three cultures, I'll call them as a short uh, way of saying it. Uh, they probably all, uh, in a sense, bundled up in protective micro environments at night when they were sleeping. They, 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 they would build huts, they would have fire, they would have um, pelts, animal pelts that they could throw over themselves as they slept. So you have an eight hour to 10 hour, let's say, period when their metabolic rates were probably basal because of, they were living in this very protective microhabitat. And then you had the other 16 hours or eight or, 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 or 14 hours or whatever, we can only estimate, when they were out walking around. And if you combine those, they were probably at about two and a half times basal for the 24 hours. So just absolutely ballparking it on a caloric basis, um, you know, for those who think in those terms, if, you know, the, somebody's basal metabolic rate would be somewhere, oh, oh, say, south of 2,000 calories a little bit. Um, so two and a half times. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you could be in their 4,000, 5,000 calorie a day type of range. 
Yeah, exactly. Good. Yes. If you'd given me an hour, I would have remembered that number and so forth. That the two thousand to twenty five hundred, right? Okay, so that that makes sense. So that's that sounds like a lot of calories. I'm wondering, you know, what these um, what these folks did during the day. You know, what was their what was their daily life? Well, like? they they were hunter gatherers. As far as we know, they didn't practice agriculture. Uh, they didn't, to any great degree, store foods, grains, or other foods. So they were hunter gatherers, and I just to, to 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 get ready for the for talking to you, James. I I kind of looked at a couple of books early this morning when I got up, and Gilligan, the guy in Australia we talked about earlier, he his I think the first sentence in his latest book is that all humans were once hunter gatherers. Because that's believed to be the the archetypical way of life for people. And what hunter-gathering involves is every day, pretty much, going out and finding your food. You, you gather, um, looking for berries, roots, honey, a bird you can smack down with a slingshot, whatever. And then, because uh, they're, they're um, edging into, ga- into hunting, that's the other aspect. You deliberately go out and try to kill animals. But that would happen pretty much on a daily basis. I mean, occasionally we know that even the, the people in Tierra del Fuego, they didn't actually hunt whales. They had no way to, to capture or kill a whale. But they occasionally found them dead. And then they would have a, like a pantry for a week or two where the whole group could go to that carcass and eat. But in general, it was a day-to-day thing. Every day was a new day. And you go out and you find the food that you and your children and so forth and your older people are going to eat that day. So you'd probably have to have, or if you were going to living in this lifestyle, you'd have to have a pretty productive ecosystem kind of year round, right? Yes, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're heavily dependent on the health of the ecosystem that they were part of. I mean, you look at the lists. Uh, one thing that it's just jaw-dropping. One day I remember well, I wanted to find out what anthropologists knew about what the San people, the Bushmen, what they ate or what they eat. Or, or what, ate when they, they no longer can function pretty much as hunter-gatherers, but what they would eat if they still could. And the lists go on for hundreds of things. For people living in their traditional ways of life, the number of types of plants and any almost any animal, ants, wasps, moths, um, small birds, big birds, moles, mice, on and on and on. So it took a complex ecosystem, back to your point. Where presumably when one of these food sources wasn't doing so well in a particular season or a particular year, others were. And so then the people could, by eating in a very diverse way, uh, feed themselves every day. That Yeah, that's fascinating. So, I mean, you know, the, the, a truly omnivorous diet. Yes. So I'm, I'm wondering now, you've, you've mentioned um, metabolic endurance uh, already. So what are the implications mm. for that? I mean, obviously, you know, a human being can, you know, get up to quite a high metabolism in an acute sense. Uh, but is there a, a, a particular challenge of doing that over a longer period of time? That's a great question. It's a perfect question, right? Where we are in our conversation, right? 
And that's what we learned the very most about in the last 15 or 20 years. Because we realize now that, I mean, if you take things that we all learn when we're when we're young, especially maybe when we're teenagers and we're full of energy and doing all kinds of things. We all know from our own personal experience that the more intensely we exercise or the more intensely we we behave each in a physical sense each day, uh, the, the, the shorter the time that we can maintain it. You know, and a simple example is that um, if you run, if, if you run, fast enough to cover 100 yards in 10 seconds, um, you cannot run that fast if you need to run that, if you try to run for 20 seconds, you know. And if you if you run fast enough to cover a mile in four minutes, uh, you can't keep running that fast for eight minutes. So we realize that as as we exercise more and more intensely, we know this, I mean, if people had thought about this 10,000 years ago, they would have realized it then. It's just everyday experience that the more intensely we work, the less time we can maintain, the, the, the less the endurance, the less time we can maintain that intensity. But what's happened in the past uh, 15 or 20 years is, the real, is, is that we've come to realize that this tendency for endurance to go down as intensity goes up, or is or vice you could word it vice versa that this carries on all the way to very long endurances. So, for example, um, a level of, of metabolism that we can maintain, let's say, for uh, ten continuous days, we can't maintain that for twenty continuous days. <laughs> See, it, it, so the curve goes way out, uh, even into um, when we start talking about weeks and months, something that we can make, that we can continue to do for a month, given its metabolic intensity, we probably can't continue to do for two months. And what's happened over the last 15 years is that this curve between intensity and endurance has been well, really beautifully defined in a quantitative way, all the way from minutes to weeks and weeks of time. So then once we use data on modern people to estimate their metabolic intensities, um, then we can ask, well, could they maintain these intensities for the entire winter season? Because now we have the, the, the endurance data all the way out to, measure, to measurements in weeks, months, and seasons. And that's really the crux of the paper I wrote is that it turns out that if, let's say that we uh, take the number two and a half we say that these people were uh, they had metabolic rates daily again 24-hour daily metabolic rates two and a half times basal um, we now know that humans based on modern data on modern people we can maintain that two and a half times basal for let's say three months if we have to we couldn't maintain it for six months, but we can maintain it for three months. And of course, it takes a certain level of grit and determination and tolerance of uh, discomfort. But those are separate issues, really. Here we're just asking, could they do this? And, and the modern data make clear that, yes, they could. 
That's fascinating. So I'm wondering now, you know, how do we have the data on modern people? This would be a very hard study to carry out, uh, you know, or to get past your, uh, you know, IRB uh, requirements. Um, how do we know? How do we know how much people can possibly endure, you know, in, a, in terms of metabolic stress? Right, right. It's another perfect question. Right. Well, uh, the, the key is the doubly labeled water method. So, so this is a method it used to be called more, more commonly the D2180 method, but I think pretty much right now everybody's gravitated towards calling it the doubly labeled water method. And the idea is it, it, it takes like, I used to tell my classes when I talked about this in a class that it was gonna take me 20 or 30 minutes to explain how it works because it's a, it's a long logical sequence. But the, 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 the basics are really simple, is that if you think about the water in our bodies right now, H2O, the isotopes of oxygen and hydrogen are the everyday isotopes in our, in the, in our natural world. So for example, the oxygen is oxygen 16, that particular isotope. Um, and, and, um, the hydrogen is is regular hydrogen, not tritium or deuterium. But then if you, but in a laboratory, you can make unusual isotopes of oxygen and hydrogen. The unusual isotope of oxygen is oxygen 18. Uh, so it has a higher atomic mass than the regular oxygen 16. And you can make deuterium. Most people are aware of that. And that's simply another isotope of hydrogen. So then you can make water in a lab that instead of being made of the ordinary hydrogen and oxygen isotopes in our natural world is made of unusual isotopes like deuterium or tritium for the hydrogen and oxygen 18 for the, for the oxygen. So then what you can do is you can inject into a person, you or me, as far as we know, this is entirely benign you can do this to anybody, you won't hurt them. You can inject into their body water that is made of these unusual isotopes. And, and the usual, at the beginning, like 40, it's probably 30, 40 years ago, at the first people tried to make water that was doubly labeled. That is, you would have a water molecule that was both an unusual hydrogen and an unusual oxygen isotope. But that's very expensive to do, and you don't need to do it, it turns out, based on the theory. So what you do is you, you get yourself some water that has its ordinary water, except the hydrogen is an unusual isotope. You get some other water that you've made in a lab that's ordinary water, except the oxygen is an unusual isotope. Then you get your, your victim, your per usually it's a, just a volunteer, somebody who would love to do it. It's been done on bicyclists and all kinds of people. And you inject them with these two kinds of water. So now you have effectively doubly labeled water. That's where the name comes from. And then the key is that what it takes a half hour to explain is that once you've done this, a person that has their levels of these unusual isotopes elevated, now over hours, days, weeks of time, that those unusual isotopes will gradually disappear from their bodies, right? and uh, they'll be excreted and lost in the environment so that months later, these people will have the same isotopic composition they had before you injected them. 
And if you measure the rate that the isotopes decline in their bodies, you can calculate their metabolic rates. And so by now, there are thousands of these measures of, for example, business people in downtown Manhattan running from one building to another, you know, our classic image in the service of the stock market or whatever, you can inject them with doubly labeled water and find out how intense their metabolism on an average New York day. You can go to the wilds of uh, Africa and inject people who are um, uh, just tilling the soil for their food. You can inject modern-day hunter-gatherers. And by now, there's thousands of measures of people on all kinds of walks of life. That's really exciting. And before that, though, it was that was a very hard piece of data to gather. I remember reading one st uh, story, and I may get this wrong, and it may even be apocryphal, but it was, you know, calculating how many calories people expended uh, on an Antarctic expedition. And the only way they had it was that they, you know, they knew how much food input they had, and they knew what the people weighed before and after the expedition. It was, yes. It sound, I mean, it sounded like a very blunt instruments. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's a good point. And probably the doubly labeled water is a bit of a blunt instrument, too, because it's averaging over the entire 24 hours. It's not telling you much of anything about the, the, the particular subparts. Right. And, I'm, you know, I'm curious about that idea um, of the fact that, you know, humans may have, uh, you know, lived at one time entirely, you know, without clothing. Um, is it is it possible that you know people could have left the savanna um, and traveled and, and you know gone through colder regions and and lived in that fashion? Um, you know, when these three cultures are just you know kind of are holdouts, or you know, is it likely that you know maybe they had clothing at some point and dropped it for lack of necessity or something like that? Do we know anything about that? Um. I tell you, I wish that uh, this is not something I've ever internalized enough to give it, give you a quick answer. But one of the points that Gilligan stresses, and I, I'm sure he's he's uh, one person, and and I think he has a fairly individualistic way of seeing all this. But a general point he makes is that as Homo sapiens um, was evolving. Uh, the ice ages were coming and going, you know, in both hemispheres, both northern and southern hemispheres. And so the, the environment, the thermal environment that early people lived in was a moving target. So they could start off naked, but then over periods of time measured in centuries, the cultures faced at times um an ever colder day-to-day -day, uh environment and at other times an ever warmer day-to-day -day environment and then they had to make adjustments in what they were wearing and but you're right about how would humanity have spread over the whole earth and stayed naked and of course we just don't have the information i mean one of the beauties of art that we that scientists tend not to think about is that sometimes we can look at art to find out facts about the past that we want to know. Um, for example, you can find out that children were playing with hoops um, in the streets of Amsterdam 400 years ago because artists drew them. 
you you can you can find out that the great big pretzels that we buy on the boardwalk in New Jersey, pretzels equal size were being made 450 years ago because people drew, painted bakeries and showed the pretzels hanging there on the back wall to be purchased. Um, but unfortunately, none of these three cultures had a, an artistic record, and nor did they have a language, a verbal language record of what they were wearing. So it, it's it's all, in many ways, it's all guesswork. It's taking the bits and pieces we know about and then trying to think how it might have worked over long periods of history. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, I guess this may be a last question. Um, one of the things that really impressed me about this article and, and really excited me was the fact that it brings together um, so many different, you know, disciplines and areas of study mm. into answering this, you know, single question of, um, you know, the feasibility of existing, you know, in these cold circumstances without clothing. And I'm just wondering, you know, how did that question, you know, arrive at you? And, you know, what kind of drove your interest? How does somebody get into answering a question like this one? Well, um, so much of it's particular. I mean, when I first heard about anthropology as a field, which I think I was a freshman, maybe a sophomore at college, so I was still a teenager. I was losing my grip on teenagerdom, but still in it. Uh, I just thought anthropology was the most fascinating, mind-boggling. Many, not only myself, but many of my friends, we all wanted to be anthropologists. <laughs> You know, later on, we found out, well, there's not that many jobs and other harsh realities. But um, but anyway, so I developed this interest. And of course, I've never lost that. You know, I when I hear something that has an anthropological twist, it, my ears perk up, you know. And um, so that's part of this is, is finding it blends. And then what happened to me is that I went to graduate school, settled in a discipline which happened to be metabolism of birds and mammals, and was uh, I was reading the scientific literature at the time that papers in the 50s and 60s with, that we've talked about were coming out. Um, and so all this created in my mind something just intensely interesting that I had an, ins you know, an, an insatiable appetite to learn more and more and more about. But then, you know, during one the middle of one's career and in, in, in the hard sciences these days, you, um, you work hardly, very hard to keep your head above water. <laughs> and so these, these kinds of things, which uh, it, it took, you know, it took quite a bit of time to write all this up, to do all the reading and everything. And I just never felt until I'm now emeritus that I had the time to do a good job of it. Um, and then uh, just to, to uh, a salute to bioscience, bioscience has its mission is integrative and interdisciplinary. And so I, I've known for, I mean, I've been known for 30 years that I was going to write this paper, right? That it took a long time to find the time to do it, which in many ways was good because if I'd written it 30 years ago, we wouldn't have had any of the information on endurance that we have now. And now we've got these literally thousands of measurements on human endurance where you have a very, very good quantitative understanding. Um, but I've thought ever since I first thought of this paper, um, it was destined to be submitted to bioscience 
because if it's interdisciplinary, which I think is so badly needed all the time, an interdisciplinary integrative approach to questions. We, we also need specialists, the specialist approach, because uh, we do need to have the, the level of criticism that comes when we publish things in highly specialized outlets where other highly specialized people are saying what they think of our highly specialized ideas. But at the same time, we need to also have the integrative approach. And uh, I think maybe that's all I should say, right? I think I answered what you asked. And, but it's um, it makes it's a very exciting subject for me because I think the integrative is just in, intrinsically very exciting. Yeah, and that's that's obviously a message that we uh, we find ourselves sharing very very frequently as well. And I think in this case, you know, uh, very grateful for the kind words, and also uh, I think we're all I speak for our listeners as well, uh, grateful for your interest in this topic. It's been fascinating to talk to you about it and i appreciate your time very much thank you yeah thank you james it's been pleasant and that concludes this episode of bioscience talks just a reminder the journal bioscience is published by oxford university press on behalf of the american institute of biological sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors thank you and talk to you next time